This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, vampire detectives and snarky female cops. Urban fantasy tropes that need a change. <laughs> In my opinion, obviously. <laughs> Um, yeah, so anyway, basically this episode came about because our last recording episode, we had something planned and then I think we lost about half an hour before that episode because we just randomly sort of <laughs> devolved off into gossiping about urban fantasy and things that we wanted to change. Yeah, that's right. Um, we we were all geared up and, <laughs> and, uh, and then we just, because we usually have a like sort of a little, a pre, you know, a a pre-episode chat that's a fairly common occurrence um and then all of a sudden <laughs> i looked outside my window and it, and it was getting dark and i was like oh we need to get on with this yeah we haven't done the thing that we were supposed to be doing okay let's let's sort of like table this for next week so um and also we thought actually we could probably get an episode out of this quite easily yeah so here we are. Um, we, we wanted to talk about it. Now, of course, um, this is based on our opinions, on our thoughts. It is, you know... On our frustrations. On our frustrations. Um, this is obviously not meant to be a dig at anyone. So if you if you like these kinds of things, if you write these kinds of things, that's awesome. That's cool. We're not digging at you. Um, we're just voicing some of our kind of personal thoughts regarding the genre as a whole. Yeah, definitely. Um, and this is something that both of us sort of uh, walk the walk as well as talk the talk on because uh, obviously I write urban fantasy. Madeline also writes urban fantasy, but you probably haven't had a chance to read much of it yet. <laughs> I love the hopeful yet. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, both of us are trying, we're not, uh, yeah, I don't think we're trying to be unconventional with some of the tropes just for the sake of being unconventional, are we? It's more a case of this This is bugging me, this is more what I want to see. So it's more come out of wanting to be able to, not being able to find certain books in urban fantasy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, yeah. And I, this comes from the fact that I am, and we've said this before, I'm kind of Jules's ideal reader. And we were talking about her series and we were talking about kind of, you know, Jules was sort of saying, oh, I wonder whether I've, you know, this is just a little bit too left field, as it were. And of course, yeah. I was saying, what are you talking about? No, this is like exactly the kind of thing that I wanted to find. And, and it kind of <laughs> evolved from there where we were just sort of basically saying, actually, yes, we wanted to find more of this and we've really struggled to find it. And so it was very refreshing, I know personally for me, to get that. And, and yeah, so I guess that's kind of where the conversation sort of started from. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, our, our final caveat before we really get into the sort of the pros and cons of changing things up trope-wise... Mm. Um, it is supposed to be a light discussion, as we've said, but um, because some of this comes out of our own personal frustration, and because I seem to be full of piss and vinegar today anyway. <laughs> um, it's not a balanced diet. It, no, it's not a balanced diet. If I get a, if I get a bit sort of um, antsy about it, it's again, it's an opinion piece. It's not, it's not me laying down the law writing-wise. No. So, uh, yeah, please remember, we are just putting our 
our thoughts and opinions forward um and these are also prone to to change and we're ready to be challenged so uh you know if you if you feel strongly about it please do let us know we always love to hear from you guys yep definitely okay so i think we should probably start by talking about the pros and cons of changing things up yeah definitely um and before we really get into the discussion of the tropes and things, because we have got a, a list of set tropes yes. we really want to examine. <laughs> it's, not a ma- it's not an exhaustive list. No. It's got our, our main areas of contention on. Put it that way. Yes. Um, it's noticed, you know, um, changing things up does come with its own set of pitfalls because obviously you readers are attracted to a specific genre and subgenre because they like those tropes and how they're packaged a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, we're not saying throw out the baby with the bathwater here. We're not saying chuck all these tropes out because then it wouldn't be urban fantasy and, you know, why are you writing it? Exactly, yeah. Um, and as we said, these are our own kind of things um, and perhaps we're, we're a little bit unique in that. Um, I'm sure that there are other people who will agree with us. Um, and I think every one of these tropes, there's going to be an example which we both actually liked. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's not us saying that the tropes themselves are inherently evil. It's we're more like the overuse of it has started to grate on us a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, and while you know, not all readers are bored with certain tropes. Yeah. Um, others will be bored or uninterested in the changes we we personally have made in our own work. Um, yeah. And things that we would like to read more of in urban fantasy. So. And we are specifically looking at urban fantasy as well. So yeah. we're not being as widespread as sort of moving into other types of fantasy or speculative fiction as a whole. This is this is very much the niche sort of subgenre type discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, these changes can make it a book hard to kind of publish, it, not least because there's a comfort in sort of knowing what to expect. And even if you're kind of interested, I think some people you know you're like oh this sounds interesting but it takes a certain amount of energy i think to kind of to get to start a new book to go come across something which is new and and is a little bit unique and a little bit different um yeah definitely so you know even for for people who this would be these changes would be ideal for um it might still kind of actually take a while um or just be unsuccessful so as we've said you know we're talking about changing tropes sort of challenging them and things like that but we do have to acknowledge the fact that there is safety in tropes um both for the reader and for the writer definitely um and that's regardless of whether you are an indie author or whether you're traditionally published Mm -hmm. um on the whole something that has been the case for i think at least the last five years and it seems to be ongoing at the moment is that urban fantasy is very difficult to sell to agents because agents are finding it very hard to sell to publishers. Yeah. And that might be because certain tropes of the certain main tropes have been overused and people just don't want to then repackage another variation of a book they've already got, which is understandable. Yeah. Um, Ironically, it's selling like wildfire, you know, is you know, with like hotcakes to, to actual readers. Readers who, <laughs> who, who who's love selling wildfire. <laughs> wildfire. I was thinking, yeah, actually that's not a good analogy at all. Who would buy wildfire? Um But urban fantasy is one of those genres that has your basically your whale readers and that they just want more of the same or yeah. more of these sort of books. 
with a little bit of a twist in a lot of cases. Yeah. So it, it's, you know, as an indie author, you can probably, if you hit the right tone and you find your audience, mm. you, you're not going to be short of people who want to read um, your books simply because it, it's quite a, a, a good market in that respect. Mm-hmm. It's just, I, I, I suppose I find it a bit ironic that uh, you get, publishers and agents saying oh urban fantasy's on the out at the moment it's like it's not on the out except with traditional publishing simply because they don't want to repackage something that's the same yeah readers are quite happy to, to keep reading more of the same if you see what i mean yeah absolutely um it's about risk and stuff like that um then you know all the associated costs and it doesn't surprise me really that urban fantasy is something which is so prevalent in independent publishing um i i kind of actually like that to be honest <laughs> yeah i mean i have to say certainly from uh from my personal experience urban fantasy is a little bit uh, easier to read not read yeah read and write mm. than um uh, high fantasy or epic fantasy yeah. or even grimdark um because obviously you're leaning on a world that everybody already knows about. Yeah. <laughs> and you're weaving elements around it, which is one of its charms, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I completely agree. <clears throat> so, and uh, you know, you just also, I think it's less dense. Yeah. And it, it leans into, you know, it has so much of a relationship with things like crime and stuff like that, which has a quite naturally quite a good pacing and things like that. So, um so I, I guess that is something that really does also need to be considered, um, which is that readers do expect certain promises to be fulfilled when you sell a book as urban fantasy. So you can't be throwing out all of the tropes and, you know, neither should you, um, because urban fantasy needs its core dedicated tropes or it wouldn't actually be urban fantasy. Um, and why would you be trying to write it? Because there's a difference between urban fantasy and low fantasy, and you can have fantasy which is written in the modern day, which isn't urban fantasy, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. It's like, for example, uh, Ben Aranovich's Rivers of London. Yeah, it's a <laughs> it's a modern urban setting, and there are fantasy elements, but it doesn't read as urban fantasy to me. No. It reads as sort of fancy police procedural, which is different. And paranormal romance, again, is a different thing again. Yeah. Um, we're we're going to try not to verge into paranormal romance because I don't think, for me personally, I'm probably not the most unbiased judge of paranormal romance. And it's not all bad. <laughs> that came out so badly. Yes. I tried so hard really and it came did. out so badly. Look, there is nothing wrong if you like paranormal romance. Um, it's clearly not entirely my bag, although I've read enough of it that there are some that I genuinely like. Um, but urban fantasy is more what I'm talking about. I'm just digging myself a hole here, aren't I? Okay. okay, backing off now. It's the it's I, the um uh, the the Simpson Joker. I don't mind the taste. <laughs> anyway, um. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, yes, but all I was trying to say is we're mostly sticking to urban fantasy. We're going to try not to go into paranormal romance. I don't feel qualified to address that territory. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I 
I've just completely derailed us. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, readers in any genre have very niche tastes, which means uh, some urban fantasy fans will love your work and find a change-up on static tropes refreshing. Others will feel cheated because they want those original iterations of tropes, even if they, even if we personally have got a bit bored of them. Yeah. Um, and that is, I kind of, I think the beauty of urban fantasy is that y- you can have that mixture between stuff. It's very easy to find. A a reliable urban fantasy, if that makes sense. Reliable in that I know exactly what I'm getting when I when I press. Yeah. When I you can be eighty percent sure you're going to really like this book. That it's going to be three or four stars or above. Yeah, exactly. Um, But you can also start to kind of find things which are a little bit different. Um, You know, the good news is that you can absolutely find an audience for your work. Um, It. It's just harder when you swim against the tide. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so let's let's dive in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> look at the tropes that irritate us personally. Yeah. And um, as we do this, we'll give examples of urban fantasy writers who've perhaps done things a little bit differently and done it quite well and how we're doing it differently in our own work. Yeah. Um, and I think the first one is a big one for both yeah. of us, which is the alpha male love interest. So... It's a massive staple of PNR, but it also turns up a lot in urban fantasy, certainly way more than I like. <laughs> and no, he's not always a werewolf or a vampire, but he is nearly always gorgeous, muscle-bound, overbearing, and usually has a brooding dark past. Although nothing that makes him a victim or vulnerable, it has to be a sexy dark past. <laughs> yeah, see, that's the thing is, I, I mean, I love I love me a, a hero who's got a, who's got a dark past, but like... Um... If I'm not going to get that vulnerability, I feel cheated, man. <laughs> <laughs> this is where Madeline is giving away one of her own personal reader kinks, which is she likes them to have really suffered. <laughs> With a view to them suffering a lot more in the future. Uh, I was going to make a... <laughs> it just makes them so much more lickable. Um... <laughs> You do. Actually, I think you've got a little bit of a lame duck thing going on as well. And, you know, this is not me casting aspersions because I totally have to, both in real life and and in books. But what would someone who's who's a bit damaged? Uh, yeah, I d- <laughs> sounds so bad. Well, it does. But, you know, you may as well own it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do. I really like that because I think... I really like stories which address the idea that someone can have can be really really badly hurt by what's happened to them um and still somehow find because I I do love the found family trope still somehow find friendship um and find love and find acceptance so um yes i do really really like to bring terrible harm uh to my characters but it's with the idea that i i just love the comfort that goes with it (laughs) yeah it's um i personally i I like Okay, let, let's challenge this trope head on okay. because I am absolute. Because yes, I do write slightly damaged male love slightly. interests, but not slightly. Not in the not in the um, 
is this isn't urban fantasy obviously but i hate the whole 50 shades of gray or i was damaged i have a dark past blah 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 um and it's obviously not a sexy dark past but um what i'm going to do is take it out and be overbearing on the female character and basically oh, yeah. be be an alpha male and it's just that doesn't work for me what works for me is having somebody who is essentially very deep down decent or is clawing their way to being a decent person mm. And actually has some deep pockets of insecurity that they need to deal with. That's an interesting character arc for me. Um, and I also, what the hell is wrong with having a, a genuinely nice person? Yeah. A nice, kind person who maybe, maybe he doesn't look like a runway model. Maybe he doesn't look like a bodybuilder or what have you. Um, he's a bit unlikely. And maybe on, at first glance, your main character just sort of, goes oh yeah you seem nice enough and looks the other way because it's not an immediate oh my god panty dropper kind of thing <laughs> that really bugs me by the way it's kind of like like this immediate physical sort of attraction is just there or it's never there rather than you can get to know somebody and and it, it grows over time to the point where you, you can't understand how you never saw it yeah i i agree and um, look i I do think that when it comes to sort of relationships, there is certainly a power in um, in attraction, immediate attraction as well. I'm not going to deny that. Um, but to be honest, I, I guess for me, attraction doesn't always necessarily have to mean sexual attraction. Yeah, I mean, you can aesthetically appreciate what someone looks like without immediately going, yeah, I think I'm going to drag that into bed kind of thing. Yeah, and... Without even seeing them as any sort of person. But at the same time, you can also turn around and just say, you know, it's not about feeling aesthetically pleased. It's not even about necessarily saying, oh, I'd like to date this person. It's, I like this person. They make me laugh. They make me smile. Um, And I think that, you know attraction it, it will it will depend on people and there are some people who really really do need that initial physical attraction before they can even consider a sort of romance and there are other people who gain that attraction over time um because of interactions and stuff like that some people genuinely don't really notice how people are attractive until they've kind of spent time with them um I don't mind there being a mix of these things, but the fact is we just don't get a mix of these things. We just get the one and I'm kind of bored by it. Yeah, we just, and that's before we even tackle the whole, be, you know, presenting the male love interest being overbearing and maybe even a bit condescending to your main character is somehow an attractive trait because they're obviously deep down very protective. Yeah, <laughs> that bugs the hell out of me. It's like um, I'm trying to remember which book series it was. It was, oh god, it was the Scarlet Bernard series by Melissa F. Olsen, and she has them. There's, there's two interlocked trilogies w- which feature Scarlet Bernard, who is a null. Right. Basically, if you are a vampire or a werewolf or something, and you're with her mm-hmm. and you're in physical contact with her, then you she makes you human for that time. Right. Um, which is which is quite interesting. So, you know, technically you, you can't attack her as a vampire because the minute you're in contact with her, suddenly you're like, 
or you know within a certain radius you're, you're not a vampire anymore yeah and you're basically back to being human and she has a werewolf boyfriend at the end of the third book what's interesting is he's kind he's an alpha for his pack mm-hmm. but him being an alpha is not sort of being overbearing and telling her what she can and can't do it's just this extreme form of being very protective and looking out for all his members and he just gets called up day and night to come and sort out problems with people's kids and things <laughs> and it's like yeah that's that but you know if we're going to take the whole wolf pack kind of analogy then that's a slightly more accurate portrayal than yes <laughs> sort of, i'm the alpha because i'm the biggest most muscular guy i'm i i am the sylvia plath sort of every woman loves a fascist type of person <laughs> jesus christ <laughs> Which is the, the thing that really, really bugs me. So, yes. Um, anyway, how have we challenged this in our own work? Well, um, I suppose you can say, well, Kieran's very classically good looking. Well, he's he's not actually. That's just kind of how other people seem to see him. He's actually just very charming. Yes. I mean, he is also good looking. He, he's Yeah, but he's not, again, not runway model type material. No. But, you know, being... Being tall and well built, and you know having charm as well, will get you quite a long way if you're a bloke. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. But I think the thing that is that really sticks out about Kieran is the way that he makes other people feel. Yeah, um, you know, he is someone who is actually quite thoughtful when it comes down to it. You know, he was a bit, a little bit thoughtless to begin with, but he's. He has a, a a level of kind of um, empathy, and I think he knows what people want from him, and that probably comes from you know having to learn from a, an early age to read signs, um, so that he wouldn't get you know beaten by his father. Um, so perhaps that's linked in with it. But he knows how to please people. Um, and he knows what to say to kind of make them feel good or what to do to make them feel good. And that's actually a really valuable power which can be abused and which you can abuse as well. Uh, but he doesn't really. He's a bit thoughtless with it, but he doesn't abuse it. Um, and I think that's probably one of his the most attractive qualities about him. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then I suppose I've really gone a complete 180 on the whole trope with with Steve in um, Harper and Blackthorn. Yes. Steve, who is not classically good looking at all and is a bit on the, the bony side and was once a flamboyant goth and <laughs> is now a history professor. And in his heart is still a flamboyant goth. Yeah, in his heart. In his heart is, of hearts. Really dress that way anymore. And he's he's just a huge nerd. It's, you know... Yeah, um, he's quiet and unassuming, and in, he, you know, he'll stand up for the stuff he believes in. But one of the things he doesn't believe in is himself. Yeah, it's very frustrating. But I think again, the thing that because <laughs> I've you know I I wasn't actually very fond of Steve in the original books. I didn't really like him. I didn't really get him. Um, and then the moment you started writing Harker and Blackthorn, you sent me like one section. It was barely a paragraph. It was barely a paragraph. And like, I was, I'm not going to say what I said, but I basically just went, well, that, that. And you said, what, how, where are you getting this from? And I was like, it's because I just 
one look at Steve and I kind of understood him. And I think it probably helped as well that he had grown up a little bit. Yeah. He was older. Um, he kind of had sort of found maybe his niche a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, he's 27 when you meet him again, whereas before that he was sort of 18, 19. Yeah, so... so there's a big gap Yeah, so, and certainly from, you know, he was suddenly... He was he was my age, essentially, when I was meeting him again. Um, and I was like, ooh, hang on a second. This guy is smart. Is in, he's just really smart and he's interested in these things and he has all these cool facts. And I was like, hey... I like facts. <laughs> I like facts. I too am a bit of a I nerd. too am a, a large bit of a It's also the fact he's an academic and I'm like, oh, I'm also an academic. And I, I guess the other thing is that he's, I think the thing is he's, he's still prickly, but he's lost the, the sort of preemptive chip on his shoulder to a certain extent. Yeah, absolutely. So I think his charm is his enduring charm is that he is he's smart um and he's a bit nerdy uh, well a lot nerdy and he's just i like it i just i like him a lot i fell in love with him very suddenly um even more i think than i did initially with kieran and i will you know i'll stand by kieran despite what some readers say. Um, <laughs> Never going to be over you know, <laughs> If you're listening to this, Matt, you're wrong. Um, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> but no, because I, I, I just suddenly liked him and I, I just felt like I understood him and that this is a, a gentle and kind person. And I don't know, kindness is... It's kind of sexy, not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, I don't think enough gets made of it. I mean, he doesn't push himself forward either. No. And yet you kind of notice him because the things he's good at, he's really good at, just quietly. and He's not expecting any praise or anything for it. Yeah, or even any it's kind like, of recognition for it. It's like Rebecca and Amy get themselves into trouble um, sort of towards the end of book three, Acquainted with the Night. Mm -hmm. And they are literally trapped in a burning building with no way out yes um but steve just sort of has you know they've left steve behind because they don't think he's going to be much of an asset and he's gone yeah okay fine you can do that etc 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 meanwhile fermenting his own plans to get into this institute <laughs> he's good he's smart <laughs> he is i mean if you uh I can't give away stuff that happens in the books that haven't been published yet. Yeah. But basically, I think if you totted up the number of times Steve actually saves the day really, really quietly, so quietly you probably don't even notice necessarily. Yeah. Um, you'd find that actually he can, you know, if you took him out, then the whole thing would just completely collapse. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I can totally believe that. And I totally agree with that. He's, he is quietly heroic. Um, and that the, there's something to be said for that. Um, he's also incredibly loyal, and I just think that that is, you know, inevitably also going to be a a very attractive quality. And he's funny. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like they're all quite 
snarky, but Steve get. I swear he gets some of the best lines. And I don't. It's not done that way on purpose. It just it, he just comes out with things. Yeah. So. I know certainly in my own writing, and and this isn't really a spoiler because obviously you do get a sense of this in um, uh, Castrol and the Kryptonites. You do have Galahad, and he is typically gorgeously handsome. Um. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just remembering some something that Kestrel says in the first book. And every time I re- reread it, it's kind of like, I still do that almost spit take of amusement. <laughs> because she, she's, it's, I guess it's the combination of, of Kestrel being sort of like, yeah, I can acknowledge he's good looking, whilst at the same time being really snarky about his good looks and unimpressed by his <laughs> The thing is that yeah, he's he's very good looking, but he's, um, he's I, I don't know if this is the right way to say, it, but sexually he's a bit of a non-entity. Does that yeah, make that, sense? He yeah. he's not really actionable. <laughs> he he yes because uh, that made it weird, but I, I, I see what you mean. You, you see what I mean is in that like he's not interested by that he's not an alpha male he's not putting the moves on um in fact he seems to be doing the literal opposite of putting the moves on um he he, because he is and this is i mean this is this is proper courtly love you know in the in the sort of the in the understood sense of uh the uh the victorians you know this this is properly um <laughs> I'm not gonna, I don't want to make this weird, but he, he's like a Kendall. <laughs> There's yeah, nothing like, there. I, I will worship you from afar. <laughs> but, you know, instead of like the, the the actual practice of courtly love, which generally failed because at some point the young knight always ended up boffing the yeah. his boss's hot young wife. Yeah, which, you know, turned out so great for Galahad's father. Um, so yeah, because he's just he's not interested in that. And Kestrel, I mean Kestrel's not blind. Um, she even jokingly makes him an offer in the first book, but actually she mostly makes him the offer so that he'll go away. Um, <laughs> he's like, if you if you need on me, please you know uh, don't hesitate to call on me in the night. And she's like, yeah, I'm sure. She's like, well, that's up to you if you'd like to come. He's like, uh, good night. That's not what I <laughs> that's meant. That's not what I meant. He's like, I tell you what, I've been rereading Journey to the West and he's kind of like Tripitaka in that way. He's like, no! <laughs> My vows! Um, not that he's made vows, but you know what I mean. Um, so he doesn't have any of that kind of alpha male energy at all about him. He's just kind of just very sweet, to be honest. Yeah, and I think we just need to see. Uh, this is quite. We're having to talk around Galahad and Kestrel, but we we will continue to do so. But I'm thinking of, you know, how there there is a novella which no one has seen, obviously apart from Madeline, <laughs> um, where um, Melanie is being internally quite derisive about Galahad. Um, and she kind of gets him a bit wrong, but it's because she's feeling a bit territorial. Yeah. And it's it's the, the same sort of thing. You can kind of see that she's wrong, even as you're in her viewpoint, mm. I think is fair to say. Um, anyway, with, with that 
in mind, let's look at our next our next trope that we don't care for that much, which is the gorgeous female lead with a bad attitude. Yeah, I look. I'm, I mean, I should say obviously straight off the bat that um, I can't be too angry about this because Kestrel obviously has a bad attitude. But there's a there's a difference between a bad attitude and a bad attitude. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Because it's like, it's like there's some chemical formula that states that an urban fantasy protagonist must be proportionately gorgeous to irritable, with a chip chip on her shoulder kind of thing. Yeah. And you know, if she's aware of her looks, then she's either very shallow and selfish, or maybe she just doesn't know how beautiful she is, which is incredibly annoying. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she is a loner who needs no man until she meets the alpha hole above. Yes. That we've just discussed. And that is, you know, it's it's so off the peg now. I think when Anita Blake, the vampire hunter, was kind of being written, it was a bit more unusual. Yeah. But then you get things like Suki Stackhouse, which, okay, is leaning towards paranormal romance. Mm. But she's, again, it's like, oh, well, I'm busty and blonde and pretty, blah, blah, blah. And it's just... Ugh. I don't know. There's a lot of focus on what the main character looks like. And I don't... Honestly, I don't have a problem with people who think, I want to write a pretty main character. That's fine. Yeah. No, I and I agree. I don't have any objections to that at all. Um, and I don't have any objections to you deciding to write a character who is not actually classically likeable either. Yeah. Um I have no problems with that at all. Um, But I think the thing comes with... I don't know, it's the sassy. I mean, and I like like a good sassy character as much as the next person. Um, But there's this kind of false sort of sassiness that you get. And it just feels kind of tired, to be honest. Yeah, it's like... I suppose the thing is that these may... These particular female main characters, their substance seems to be made up of this supposed sassiness, which actually is quite often not very sassy, Mm. and also the fact that they're incredibly good looking. And they're supposedly independent, but they quite often sort of turn into damsels in distress just because it's convenient to have the the alpha male sweep in and take care of business kind of thing. And it just bugs the hell out of me because they tend to be the female characters where people go... Um, she's really competent, she's really clever, she does X, Y and Z. And I'm like, okay, I am writing about a, a literal doctor of physics. And obviously I don't have a doctorate in physics, quantum <laughs> or otherwise. Um, but the things that, for example, Amy is good at, she's good at with evidence. I do give you supporting evidence in the text, <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. I don't just tell you she's good at maths and then not go into it any further than that. Yeah, no, no, I... I... I agree. Plus, I am bored of this sort of like, oh, everything's terrible, almost nihilistic approach to the world. I'm like, I want a character who is either, you know, is sort of grudgingly going along and, and, okay, this sucks, but I'm going to fucking do it anyway. Yeah. Or I want someone who's cheerful and sunny natured. And that's obviously what I did with Amy. She's cheerful. She's optimistic. She's annoyingly sunny natured a lot of people are kind of like oh god it's the morning and amy's up it's like yeah and I, I that's the thing is that like even with uh, even with kestrel 
who is at times can be can be sort of cruel actually she you know without meaning to she can be quite abrupt because she's very angry a lot of the time and not without reason um i think she's still kind ultimately and i like kind characters i think kindness is so often sort of thrown out of the way and i do understand people being like okay but we're actually kind of a bit fed up of of kindness being you know being the duty of women um but i think you can have badass women who are also kind and it's not about saying oh well they you know they they've all got to have automatic motherly instincts and all that jazz i'm not talking about that i'm i'm talking about just i don't know not being being an asshole (laughs) it's and you know it's different if you've chosen to write almost like an anti-hero type then yeah I, i can see that because obviously again people haven't met melanie beckett yet really yeah but she is coming from a perspective of I will look after myself first and there's specific reasons for that yeah um but and you know the her her own selfishness is kind of part of her arc yeah absolutely but that's different to sort of like oh I'm sassy just because kind of thing. yeah I yeah I, I agree I completely agree um and again I it's not that I have an objection to people writing characters like that i don't have an objection to that um i guess i think perhaps there's an expectation that you just have to write characters like that um yeah and it's not okay so it's not urban fantasy but you know even with Faye, when you first meet her she's very prickly i mean she just flat out tries to murder um Rufus. No, no, no. Sorry, no, no. Uh, oh, no Faye, Faye yeah, Faye is yeah. in um from uh the Sons of Thestian. Yeah, she just flat out tries to murder um Rufus. She's angry. She's not very nice. She's quite prickly. Um, she can still also know joy and sadness and have moments of kindness, even if those moments aren't <laughs> directed at Rufus. <laughs> yeah, it's like um, the Jezebel Files, which I think I've recommended in a previous episode some time ago. Yeah, um, by Deborah Wilde, the the main character, um, which has kind of gone out of my head, unfortunately. Hopefully, she'll her name will come back. But she's a great character. She has got she's a real nerd about Sherlock Holmes, for example. Nice. And she kind of she she's a PI and she's Jewish, mm-hmm. and so. The whole, you know, I'll get into that a bit later because that's a good example of something else that I want to talk about. But um, she's kind of snarky because she's defensive against not being what her mother wants her to be. Yeah. So there's a preemptive defense mechanism. So there's a good reason for it. But if you have her interacting with most people normally, she's she's not rude for the sake of being rude, mm. if you see what I mean. Um and she's, you know, if it's someone who is clearly more, is clearly vulnerable or whatever, she is actually, you know, kind. She's quite nice to them. Um, and she makes mistakes and she screws up and, you know, she has real commitment issues because her dad, who she was very close to, just sort of left with no warning when she was, I don't know, about 12. Mm. And so she's never really been able to trust that anyone's going to stay there for her. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, this is a complex, layered character who can be a bit of an asshole, but is generally a decent person. 
I'm down with that. Totally. I all I guess all, what I'm trying to say with with all of this on my side certainly is um, if you want to write a badass, you know, you want to have a badass character. That's great, but don't feel like it. They have to be a an asshole <laughs> in order to fulfil expectations. You can have someone who's a badass who is also vulnerable or optimistic or just quite sweet or things like that um or you know you can have a nihilistic badass but then think about why they are the way that they are and are they that way with everybody etc yeah definitely um okay so (laughs) another trick um which we have kind of canvassed before but i did want to just mention it and that is the the insta love slash supernatural love triangle (laughs) Um, we've actually said before in several episodes that we're not actually opposed to love triangles as long as it's part of a developed character arc. Yeah. And I think that's fair that, you know, that still goes, but is, you know, if you're writing it, I think you've got to ask yourself, am I using it that way? Or is this just an excuse to have two hot guys panting over the, the main character who will be female in this scenario? Because if it is, maybe try and do something else. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is up to you. If, if that's the kind of story you want to tell, then go for it. You know, I'm not going to stop you. But it is, yeah. Yeah. I, it's tired. It's a bit boring. Um, and, and the insta-love itself is kind of, it just, unless there's a weird supernatural reason for it and you're going to pull a bit of a bait and switch i think it's quite lazy yeah yeah look i mean okay so for example i i do actually like examples you know versions of stories which say actually sometimes the people that we were in love with before are no longer right for us yeah and that's okay um, because we've changed. It's one of the things that I actually liked about um, A Court of Thorns and Roses was the fact that, okay, these two, you know, Feyre and Tamlin were in love with each other. Sorry, it's not um, urban fantasy, but you know what I mean. They were in love with each other and then stuff happened. They're different people now. Things have changed. In some cases, they're literally different people. Um, I'm not making commentary, but I'm sort of making commentary. Anyway, um, so I don't mind if there are multiple romances, um, but you've got to ask yourself why. Why are you doing this? Um, And hey, if you were just being honest and you're saying, yeah, actually, it's because I do want to have this thirsty, thirsty kind of book, then you know what? Good for you. You know what you're doing. Um, Fine. You're probably writing paranormal romance, not urban fantasy. Yes. In that scenario. And yes, that you know, obviously, you can have you can have a, a character who is madly in love with another character, and that character doesn't know anything about it. Yes. And that basically goes out with everybody else. Um, obviously, I'm not going to throw stones at that because these <laughs> things happen, and they happen in real life as well. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you have no right to throw stones. <laughs> I have no right to throw stones there. Um, but I, I guess the thing is, there's again, there's an off-the-peg quality, as in 
um, why in that scenario you quite often have it it would be a female character who is madly in love with this one but won't go anywhere near the bloke because he's off sleeping with everyone because he has intimacy issues blah blah, blah and she's the only one who can fix him and it's kind of like if I can say that and you're kind of like oh yeah I've read that story because somewhere you will have read that story then it's probably been overused yeah that doesn't mean that there aren't loads of readers out there who don't want that story again but yeah uh, fair enough. this is an opinion piece and yeah that's not for me <laughs> <laughs> yeah to be honest it just it does start to get a little bit boring and you kind of you do get to the point where you're like why why do you want this person what have they ever been able to offer you um because it's so often it's yeah you can help them but what can they offer you what can they really do for you and i don't mind a character who perhaps you know is in love and is avoiding that person because they don't feel worthy of them and so they do go and sleep around and stuff like that i don't really mind that but yeah it's a there's a certain trend and i'm just not sure that i personally like it no um i accidentally skipped over one but you did. It, just very quickly the supernatural protagonist um, I'm not saying I'm absolutely against this, by the way. Um, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> because, you know, you know, if you want a main character who is... Uh, I mean, obviously, having a main character who happens to have magic or um, psychic powers or whatever, I'd be a bit of a hypocrite if I said, yeah, that's boring now, that's over. They must just be human and very, very ordinary kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I think you need to make them... Well, you don't need to. I think it would be refreshing to see more mostly human characters rather than um, you're a vampire, a shapeshifter, a witch. I mean, I'm not sure um, because I've read books where you've got the main character is a is a shapeshifter, but perhaps they could just be a different kind of shapeshifter. It's very noticeable that female shapeshifters are all kind of, inverted commas, um, the sexy animals kind of thing. And if you don't know what I mean by sexy animals, think about how how Disney does foxes, for example. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, you, you, you very rarely have a shape-shifting female character who happens to be a hare or a mouse, do you? You have some, It's like the bed knobs and broomsticks thing where, um, where Eglantine keeps turning what's-his-name into a rabbit to punish him and he's like can't you just turn me into a tiger or something with a fire and dash it's in, it's not dignified to be turned into a fluffy white rabbit every time <laughs> and it it's that thing um i read one recently where the shape-shifting female character was a bear which is an unusual one for for women but cool but cool and obviously she keeps some attributes so she's very tall and she's broad-shouldered and she's very strong mm. so she's not a small delicate female character so different in that respect yeah um so i don't actually have a problem with supernatural protagonists but um i understand that that is something that people are getting a bit irritated with yeah apparently. i i know what you mean it's also it's characters who are very overpowered at the start yeah where do you go with that um yeah it, and then and then you kind of have to backtrack <laughs> we've seen examples of this uh <laughs> oh, yeah. okay don't because i don't need the headache. no 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 no. i'm not i'm not i'm not gonna say anything um but <laughs> but i could uh no um we you know 
you do you you kind of where do you go with it and i i i guess the essence is um not everything has to be about how sexy you are yeah i think that is a big one definitely yeah it's you know your the, the magic doesn't have to be sexy magic the it, the it, it doesn't all have to be sexy um because even the sexiest people have very unsexy moments and i'm not talking about the oh god you know i need to wash and you know uh the the whole the faux oh i'm i'm a mess kind of thing that you get in um in films and stuff like that where you know their makeup is still immaculate and <laughs> they look absolutely fine i'm not talking about that i'm not, i'm talking about just just people being people we you know we're not always not everything is you know all about how sexy we are we we can also just people be people so i kind of like the idea of of bear woman which i guess to some people would be sexy in a different way but you know <laughs> yeah i mean well i haven't really put this down as a separate item but while we're on the subject we can talk about um appearance being a thing because particularly for female protagonists i think mm. um it, it's noticeable that a lot of urban fantasy authors go for very specific body types and appearances and things. And it's just, um, there's no reason why your main character can't be attractive. But if everybody is falling at their feet, then maybe you've gone too far. Maybe. Yeah. It's like that I do poke fun at this a little bit in Harker Blackthorn because... That the really really good looking person mm -hmm. isn't really the main character we don't get her viewpoint very much no <laughs> and she's kind of like you know amy even says to rebecca at one point after they've just sort of had to do a mad dash across muddy fields in the dark through thorn hedges she's like why do we get to the end of these things and you just look like the beautiful heroine of an action movie disaster <laughs> and i look like this and rebecca's kind of like good jeans like, i know i'm good looking it's useful for when i want to get laid but other than that it doesn't really matter so it's there's a joke in one of the uh, um the kestrel saga books as well where kestrel just is annoyed by the fact that galahad gets all the attention she's like why does he get all the sexy attention he doesn't even want it <laughs> And yeah, it, <laughs> I have I have no problem with sexy characters. I like me a good sexy character, um, but yeah, the I, the way that the sort of the whole sexy female character has kind of been done, I just don't feel close to these people at all. I don't, and I often I don't feel attracted to them either. Yeah, there's too much emphasis put on. On looks rather than personality I guess with it it's like you know Amy's you know sweet and pretty but she's also not classically beautiful probably no um she's she's short and a bit on the skinny side and <laughs> yeah and has not chosen the most fashionable hair <laughs> style ever yes and Kestrel Kestrel is um you know, she's well. She's a plus size girl. 
first of all. Um, and she has stopped, she pretty much stopped making any effort into her appearance a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> You don't deserve my time. <laughs> it's like you don't deserve my time when she's looking at herself in the mirror. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> because she, she's just, yeah, she's she's kind of stopped because she just can't be bothered. And if she puts an effort into it, yeah, she'll look, she looks quite nice. She's not an ugly person. Um, she can actually be quite attractive. Um, but the thing that's kind of really sort of attractive about her is the charm that she can have when she makes an effort. <laughs> and yeah, I, I guess I sort of, I prefer characters like that because I'm a bit of a weirdo in that I actually tend to just think that most people are attractive. Um, like I see people and I'm like, most people here are attractive. Um, I, I think I come from the other perspective of most people are just there. Well, I mean... As in, they're not unattractive. But I mean, but they, that, that, until they sort of do something attractive, they're kind of like, not anything. Yeah, no, but I... Yeah, I guess it, it's more like... I should I should say, you know, I just see people and, and I, I mean very aesthetically, not like a like a sunset or something like that. Um, <laughs> n- not so much that I, I'm very... Yeah, like that. I just <laughs> my brain doesn't really equate those kinds of things um, yeah. in terms of oh, what that's a traditionally you know handsome person. Oh, what a sexy person. My brain doesn't work like that. Um, but I can sort of look at people and be like, ah, oh, this person is attractive. I can see the attractive qualities in them. I like the way their eyes are bright, etc. You know, I am actually very much like that, um, and. Yeah, so I I guess I get this thing where um, people in, in books, they're like, and they were very attractive. And I'm like, well, I mean, obviously, because pretty much all people are attractive. And I just don't get it, I guess. Yeah, so again, I was like, and they were very attractive. And I'm like, if you say so. <laughs> um, a little sidebar here, but I think I've always kind of been like that, as in, even as a teenager, when you're traditionally supposed to be checking people out, I was always kind of like, yeah, they're all right, kind of thing. Yeah. They're fine. It was, it was um, even having a, a horrible, violent crush on somebody, which, by the way, I don't recommend. Crushes are horrible things. <laughs> um, yeah, really, really uncomfortable six months of my life, that was. Not doing that again. Not fun. Zero out of ten. Do not recommend. <laughs> Um, but even then it was kind of like, I wasn't looking going, you know, that is the hottest thing in shoe leather. kind. Of. Um, so yeah, I, I distinctly remember at 16 uh, being at college and one of my uh, friends, female friend, was talking about someone's nice ass. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, well, you can spot a nice ass, can't you? I'm like, Honestly, that's not really the first thing I look at on someone. She's like, well, it's not the first thing I look at either, but, you know, I can spot a good one. I'm like, uh, okay, I must learn this witchcraft. Point out a nice house to me, because <laughs> I, I obviously don't get this. And she spent about half an hour trying to point out nice houses to me. And I just, I, by the end of it, I still didn't get it. <laughs> anyway, a few weeks later, I, fi- I, I was kind of like, Kate, Kate, Kate. <laughs> and she was like, what? And I said, that one there. And she's like, Yes, that's a passable ass. Well done. You find me. <laughs> but 
but he wasn't making a connection in my brain as in kind of like oh that's a nice slappable ass in my head <laughs> it was just kind of like okay that basically conforms to the dimension she's pointed out to me before if that makes yes. sense yes <laughs> it's a very scientific way of looking at it <laughs> yes so clearly whatever this thing is i don't have it it's like i never understood why girls in my class were kind of like oh yeah um so and so got to go and see the chippendales and i'm like why i don't even know if the chippendales are still a thing i have no but, idea what you're talking about so you know <laughs> okay the chippendales not the furniture makers i must point out <laughs> The Chippendales were, during the 80s and 90s, a well-known and popular group of male strippers who danced on stage and, you know, if you were lucky, you'd get the posing pouch thrown at you and it would, it would hit you in the eye or something. Oh, that's all, exactly what I want. I believe my sister went with one of my friends and one of our friends, rather, um, to see them. And apparently it was really, really good. And I was just kind of like, don't get it. I don't get why you're looking at that. That's boring. They're not even doing a good dance. <laughs> so, again, I don't have that thing. That that thing is missing. Yeah. Now, if you had one of them up there, even if they were, like, naked apart from a posing pouch and they started talking about something really interesting or, you know, um, showing some sort of musical prowess or something, you would have got my attention a lot more. So. Yeah. It's, it does have to be said, it's it's... When when they do have books and they talk about, oh, they're very attractive, a part of my brain goes, oh, yeah, prove it. What are they doing? <laughs> Go on, then, make them attractive. <laughs> I guess it's... <laughs> this is very much in... The, my, my, my tastes very much start to kind of become apparent when, when I'm reading these books, because it's like a, ah, and they describe this character who's classically handsome, and then they describe the Saki character who's their friend, and I'm like, oh, hello. <laughs> that did kind of throw me a bit with Steve, because on numerous occasions you get, yeah, he was very plain, he, was, he looked a bit sort of medieval, and Madeline's kind of like, okay, tell me more. <laughs> I have an aesthetic. <laughs> <laughs> So um so there's that. Okay. So uh Jules and I have realized that uh, in our enthusiasm and in our chattering <laughs> this is definitely going to be a two-parter. So we're going to do one more um and then we'll come back next week with even more examples of this. Uh we apologize to people but we're having so much fun um and hopefully you guys are enjoying the ride as well. And by now, you must know what you've signed up for. <laughs> Unless this is your first episode, in which case, we're really we're sorry really that sorry. this happens a lot. <laughs> we do have some very informative and efficient episodes as well. <laughs> we really do. But this is an opinion one. Yes. So our last one is magic solves everything. It's the it's the magic key thing that was oh, so irritating when I was a child. It's, uh, yeah, it's incredibly annoying, particularly if it's, this is a, they're up against something that is worse than anything they've faced before, blah, 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 and your main character has struggled against the odds for 350 pages, and then somehow they just wrap things up by waving a magic wand at the end. Yeah, it's just not, it's not satisfying. Um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with your MC having magic or psychic abilities, and if we said there was, we'd be massive hypocrites. Um, but they kind of should be as much of a hindrance as they are a help and certainly you know they they shouldn't just be the answer they should be part of the solution but not the answer 
Um, and they shouldn't be able to solve everything. And importantly, your main character shouldn't be able to just land the ending alone. If they do, then your supporting cast doesn't really have enough to do. Even if they are the one who, who sort of deal this final blow, um, you know, you need to have everything kind of coming together. Otherwise, what are they... What what are your supporting cast there for? Yeah, agreed. Um, and it it is really annoying. I've, I guess with the whole, I mean, I'll I'll talk from the whole sort of psychic abilities thing, and it's a case of yeah, Madeline's absolutely right. They should be part of the solution, but not not the answer, which is a really good way of putting it. Mm. And it's like um, with M, for example, M's obviously got this terrifying and huge ability, and yet. It's not going to solve most of her life's problems. There are very few occasions when being able to open an interdimensional rift into the land of the dead is actually going to solve shit for you. Yeah, and there are quite a lot of occasions when it's going to make matters worse. Yes. Which it does. Yes, it really is. <laughs> um, and it's the same with Amy. It's kind of like telekinesis is not actually going to solve everything for you. It's not going to make it easier for you to navigate your, your love life, for example, or issues with your your boss at work or you know just get through daily life by trying to buy a coffee and a cake yeah yeah absolutely um and you know at some points it it might even be you know a hindrance or it might not be the answer to everything I, i think one of the things that i've enjoyed the most with kestrel is that she is obviously she is quite powerful but she does have these kind of pretty severe handicaps when it comes to her using her magic. And for the most part, she gets by, not by using amazing magic, but by scrabbling. <laughs> she, I mean, some of the magic she's used has actually been really pitiful. <laughs> it's one thing i've actually really enjoyed where i've sort of looked at her and just been like this isn't actually amazing or astounding magic at all um it's tricks and i think one spell she's sort of consistently used has been thing has been something like just muting people which she's used on several occasions (laughs) And she can occasionally summon up essentially super strength, um, but not like massively super strength, uh, not, you know, like lift an entire building sort of super strength, more like um, muscles to the absolute max kind of super strength. Um, And really, to be honest, that's it. She doesn't actually have that much going for her. Um, so far as she sees it and certainly um, yeah so far as kind of other people other people's expectations they may suddenly find themselves a tad disappointed yeah definitely um, and it, it's the whole sort of things getting in the way it's like um, Amy's sort of very kind of quite weak te- uh, telepathic ability mm. just means that Sometimes it's just an extension of being empathetic and knowing how someone's feeling, but not knowing why. Yeah. And sometimes it's sort of, yes, you can kind of pick up thoughts, but it's absolutely deafening and there's no sense to it. It's like being given loads of information all at once. So it's not 
terribly helpful. No. And the times she does actually use it very deliberately, which admittedly this book isn't out yet, but yeah, she kind of makes the point that, you know, even if you could just delve into someone's head, the amount of information that's in there, even in the most uninformed person who isn't really thinking hard at all, is so much that you just couldn't sort through it all. You know, 10 supercomputers working at maximum capacity couldn't do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and <laughs> it also doesn't guarantee that you're going to get the answers that you're looking for. <laughs> no. No, absolutely not. So, so you need tri- uh, you need uh, tricks and traps and things to get people to think in the direction you want them to in the first place. It, you know, it's a very double-edged sword. Yeah. And it kind of screws up a lot of her personal type interactions because she just... Yeah. It stops her learning more traditional ways of navigating the world, shall we say. Yes. Traditional ways that would probably be quite helpful to her on a number of, yeah. <laughs> in a number of ways. Okay, uh, we're going to wrap up for now and we will be back uh, next week with some of our more some more pet peeves regarding urban fantasy. Before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, I believe that you have a horror for us. Yes. Um, I have to say, I sort of went into this book without... I kind of thought I was getting a folk horror slash traditional horror, and it's actually more thriller with hints of horror, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, and you, you're certainly led to believe that there's something supernatural going on at the beginning when they're there kind of isn't yeah but i don't want to spoil anything basically this is the last house on needless street by capturing award um and she has written some folk horror hence me expecting folk horror and it, you know it's a, a book that was actually recommended you know stephen king blurbed it and said it was great which to me means there's a 50 percent chance i'll like it because half the books he recommends i'm like i hate that i hate it so much <laughs> So I, I really can go either way. We clearly don't share that much of taste in, in, in books and things. Um, it's really interesting. It, it's... I kind of... Uh, I'm trying... It's one of those ones where if I give you the main thread of the plot, I'm giving too much away and I don't want, don't want to do that. But yeah. basically, um, uh, you have two main, main perspectives. One of them is this guy, Ted, who lives in this boarded up house Mm -hmm. and he doesn't really interact with people and you get the impression there's something really not right with him Mm. and there's something a little bit off and odd and yet you're in his perspective a lot um then there's another perspective which is that of olivia who is a cat oh which might sound and it it feels nuts to start with but you've got to bear with it (laughs) just trust me on this Olivia is a very devout, God-fearing cat and occasionally knocks the Bible over so she can read a verse kind of thing, just to give you a bit of character colour. And another perspective is that of... um, I've forgotten her name, but basically it's the main character and 11 years before, her younger sister went missing when they were at a sort of summer retreat by a lake. Right. She's just gone. No one's ever found her. And she is absolutely convinced that Ted had something to do with her disappearance. That's that's not a spoiler to say that. Okay. Um, so she kind of moves into the last house on Needless Street, 
in order to get closer to him to get some information as to what happened to her sister because it's completely fucked up her life. Yeah. She feels guilty for what happened to her sister. Um, she's lost both parents over it, one way or another, and she's desperate for answers. It's that horrible sort of a child has gone missing and and our lives are on hiatus until we know what's happened. And yeah. If, you know, had the statistic, statistically, you're not going to find out kind of thing. Yeah. So it goes from there. And it's it feels quite creepy and horrific. And there's there's talk about other entities and things around. Again, don't want to spoilify you. You've got to get into the book um, and, and see where it goes. I started off thinking I quite like this. Then I went through a stage of mm, this is a three star read. Then I went to maybe it's four stars. Then I went back to it's a three star read. And at the end, I gave it five stars because it was so well done. <laughs> So I went on a real emotional journey there, even though I did see the main plot twist coming. But what Ward managed to do was make me doubt my own conclusions, which not many authors make me do. So, you know, props for that. Mm, okay. <laughs> but I do recommend it. It's it's um, it's an interesting read and it, it's quite sensitively done with some of the things that it deals with. All right. This sounds really interesting. Thank you. And on that note, guys, we'll say thanks very much for listening. Do let us know what some of your favourite and some of your pet peeve urban fantasy trends are. We'd love to hear from you. But for now, we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers, or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.